Section 2 of The Court and Character of King James, whereunto is now added the Court of King Charles, by Anthony Weldon. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Court of King James, Part 1 The Court of King James bore a general discourse of some secret passages in state since the death of that ever-glorious Queen Elizabeth until this present. By the author's own observation, who was either an eye or ear witness, or from such as were actors in them, from their own relation. Upon the 24th of March, 1602, did set the most glorious sun that ever shined in our firmament of England, the never-to-be-forgotten Queen Elizabeth of happy memory, about three in the morning at her manor of Richmond, not only to the unspeakable grief of her servants in particular, but of all her subjects in general. And although many of her courtiers adored that rising sun appearing in the north, yet since, not without regret of their monstrous ingratitude to her, that sun now set, and in peace. For no sooner was that sun set, but Sir Robert Carew, her near kinsman, and whose family and himself she had raised from the degree of a mean gentleman to high honour in title and place, most ingratefully did catch at her last breath to carry it to the rising sun then in Scotland. Notwithstanding a strict charge laid to keep fast all the gates, yet, his father being Lord Chamberlain, he by that means found favour to get out to carry the first news, which, although it obtained for him the governorship of the Duke of York, yet hath set so wide a mark of ingratitude on him, that it will remain to posterity a greater blot than the honour he obtained afterward will ever wipe out. About nine in the morning of that day was proclaimed King James of blessed memory by the name of James I, and now nothing on all hands but preparations for accommodating him in his journey for England, many posting into Scotland for preferment, either by endearing themselves by some merit of their own to the king, or by purchasing friends with their purses, gold and silver being a precious commodity in that climate, and would procure anything and did procure suits, honours, and offices to any that first came, of all which the king afterward extended his bounty in so large and ample a manner as procured his own impoverishment to the pressure of his subjects, so far as set some distance between him and them, which his wisdom and kingcraft could easily at all times reconcile. The first that came from the king to the lords in England, to give order for all things necessary for the expediting his journey toward England, was Sir Roger Aston, an Englishman born, but had his breeding wholly in Scotland, and had served the king many years as his barber, an honest and free-hearted man, and of an ancient family in Cheshire, but of no breeding, answerable to his birth. Yet he was the only man ever employed as a messenger from the king to Queen Elizabeth, as a letter-carrier only, which expressed their own intentions without any help from him, besides the delivery, but even in that capacity was in very good esteem with Her Majesty, and received very royal rewards, which did enrich him, and gave him a better revenue than most gentlemen in Scotland. For the Queen did find him as faithful to her as to his master, in which he showed much wisdom, though of no breeding. In this his employment I must not pass over one pretty passage I have heard himself relate that he did never come to deliver any letters from his master, but ever he was placed in the lobby. 
the hangings being turned him where he might see the queen dancing to a little fiddle which was to no other end than that he should tell his master by her youthful disposition how likely he was to come to the possession of the crown he so much thirsted after for you must understand the wisest in that kingdom did believe the king should never enjoy this crown as long as there was an old wife in england which they did believe we ever set up as the other was dead sir roger aston presenting himself before the council being but a plain untutored man being asked how he did and courted by all the lords lighted upon this happy reply even my lords like a poor man wandering above forty years in a wilderness and barren soil am now arrived at the land of promise this man was afterward made gentleman of the bedchamber master of the wardrobe and invested with such honours and offices as he was capable of and that enabled him to live in a noble way during his life and to leave his daughters great fortunes but had you seen how the lords did vie courtesies to this poor gentleman striving who should engross that commodity by the largest bounty you could not but have condemned them of much baseness especially seeing when at this time offices and great places of honour will not be accepted from that son that the very barber of whose father was so much courted but to speak a good word in their behalves surely the times are much altered and now all preparation was made to meet the king in york that he might in that northern metropolis appear like a king of england and take that state on him there which was not known in scotland there met him all the lords of the council and there did they all make court to the scotchmen that were most in favour with the king and there did the scotch courtiers lay the first foundation of their english fortunes the chief of them was sir george hume a kind of favourite but not such as after appeared with young faces and smooth chins but one that for his wisdom and gravity had been in some secret councils with his master which created that dearness between them and the chief of those secrets was that of gowrie's conspiracy though that nation gave little credit to the story but would speak both slightly and despitefully of it and those of the wisest of that nation yet there was a weekly commemoration by the tuesday sermon and an anniversary feast as great as it was possible for the king's preservation ever on the fifth of august upon which day as sir john ramsay after earl of holderness for his good service in that preservation was the principal guest so did the king grant him any boon he would ask that day but had such limitations set to his asking as made his suit as unprofitable unto him as that he asked it for was unserviceable to the king and indeed did make the english believe as little the truth of that story as the scots themselves did and yet on my conscience the good gentleman did in that as a liar often doth by telling a lie often believeth it to be a very truth but the truth was although he was not a man capable of much itself yet had it been true there was too little done for him being not true too much for being an earl he was in very little esteem either with his master or with the better sort of courtiers and i pray god that the effects of those sermons in the father's time for that service cause no ill effects or be not one cause of god's anger towards us in the son's reign this sir george hume being the only man that was the guider of the king in his affairs all the wiser sort of english made their addresses unto him amongst those sir robert cecil a very wise man but much hated in england 
by reason of the fresh bleeding of that universally beloved earl of essex and for that was clouded also in the king's favour he came to york but lay close unseen or scarce known to be in the city until he knew what entertainment he should receive from the king for he was in his own and all men's opinions so under the hatches as not ever to appear above board again nor did any of the counterfaction to essex besides himself ever attain to the king's favour but those friends raised by his wit and purse did so co-operate of which sir roger aston that plain man was principal for which he lost not his labour that sir george hume and sir robert cecil had many secret meetings and did so comply that sir robert cecil to the admiration of all did appear and come out of his chamber like a giant to run his race for honour and fortune and who in such dearness and privacy with the king as sir robert cecil as if he had been his faithful servant many years before yet did not either his friends wit or wealth raise him so much as some believe as the ill offices done by him to this nation in discovering the nature of the people and showing the king the way how to enhance his prerogative so above the laws that he might enslave the nation which though it took well then yet it hath been of sad and dangerous consequence in after times for first he caused a whole cartload of parliament precedents that spake the subject's liberty to be burnt next raising two hundred thousand pound for making two hundred baronets telling the king he should find his english subjects like asses on whom he might lay any burthen and should need neither bit nor bridle but their asses ears and when the king said it would discontent the generality of the gentry he replied tush sir you want the money that will do you good the honour will do them very little and by these courses he raised himself friends and family to offices honours and great possessions yet as a punishment he lived long enough to have lost all had not death prevented him between the bath and london for the duke of bullion being then here about the overture of that unfortunate match between the Polsgrave and the Lady Elizabeth, had so done his errand and discovered his juggling. It is most certain he had been stripped of all at his return, which he, well understanding from his friends at court, did expedite his end. But he died opportunely to save his honour and his estate for his posterity, though to leave a mark of ignominy on himself by that Herodian disease and that for all his great honours and possessions and stately houses he found no place but the top of a molehill near Marlborough to end his miserable life so that it may be said of him and truly he died of a most loathsome disease and remarkable without house without pity without the favour of that master that had raised him to so high an estate and yet must he have this right done him which is also a note of the misfortune of our times there hath not been any since his time that equalled him to fulfil the proverb seldom comes a better he had great parts was very wise full of honour and bounty a great lover and rewarder of virtue and able parts and others so they did not appear too high in place or look too narrowly into his actions the next that came on the public theatre in favour was henry howard a younger son of the duke of norfolk and lord thomas howard the one after earl of northampton the other earl of suffolk lord chamberlain and after lord treasurer 
who by Salisbury's greatness, with that family rather than by any merit or wisdom in themselves, raised many great families of his children. Northampton, though a great clerk, yet not a wise man, but the grossest flatterer of the world, and as Salisbury by his wit, so this by his flattery raised himself. Yet one great motive to the raising all of that name of Howard's was the Duke of Norfolk, suffering for the Queen of Scots, the King's mother, yet did Suffolk so far get the start of Northampton that Northampton never after loved him but from the teeth outwards, only had so much discretion as not to fall to actual enmity, to the overthrow of both, and the weakening that faction. Suffolk also using him with all submissive respect, not for any love, but hope of gaining his great estate and sharing it amongst his children. But Northampton's distaste was such by his loss of the treasurer's place, which he had with such assurance promised to himself in his thoughts, that except what he gave to Master Henry Howard, the rest he gave to the Earl of Arundel, who by his observance, but more especially by giving Northampton all his estate if he never returned from travel, had wrought himself so far into his affections that he doted on him. And now the principal managers of the English affairs were Salisbury, Suffolk, Northampton, Buckhurst, Edgerton, Lord Keeper, Worcester, and the Old Admiral. For the Scots, Sir George Hume, now Earl of Dunbar, Secretary Elphiston, after Earl of Balmerino, and as wise a man as was in England or Scotland, the Lord of Kinloss, a very honest but weak man. You are now to observe that Salisbury had shaken off all that were great with him, and of his faction in Queen Elizabeth's days, as Sir Walter Raleigh, Sir George Carey, the Lord Grey, the Lord Cobham. The three first very able men, as the world had, the last but one degree from a fool, yet served their turns better than a wiser man by his greatness with the Queen, for they would put him on anything and make him tell any lie with as great confidence as a truth. Three of these were utterly ruined, as you shall hear in the following discourse. The fourth, being a very wise man, contented himself with a mean place that was worthy of a much greater. And although very active formerly, called to mind this saying, Felix quem facim, etc., and meddled with no state business, his wisdom foretelling his fate if he had done otherwise, for he did see one better headpiece than his own sit tottering at that time, and fell off afterwards, which made him think it was good sleeping in a whole skin. The king no sooner came to London, but notice was taken of a rising favourite, the first meteor of that nature appearing in our climate. As the king cast his eye upon him for affection, so did all the courtiers to adore him. His name was Mr. James Hay, a gentleman that lived long in France, and, some say, of the Scottish guard to that king. This gentleman coming over to meet the king and share with him in his new conquest, according to the Scots phrase, it should seem had some former acquaintance with the then leisure ambassador in Scotland for the French king, who coming with his majesty into England, presented this gentleman as a well-accomplished gentleman to the king in such an high commendation as in general alike England produced a favourite. In thankful acknowledgement whereof, he did him many fair offices for the present, and coming afterwards an extraordinary ambassador to our king, made him the most sumptuous feast at Essex House that ever was seen before, never equalled since, in which was such plenty, 
and fish of that immensity brought out of Muscovia, that dishes were made to contain them. No dishes in all England before could near hold them. And after that a costly voidee, and after that a mask of choice noblemen and gentlemen, and after that a most costly and magnificent banquet, the king, lords, and all the prime gentlemen then about London being invited thither. Truly he was a most complete and well-accomplished gentleman, modest and court-like, and of so fair a demeanour as made him be generally beloved. And for his wisdom I shall give you but one character for all. He was ever great with all the favourites of his time, and although the king did often change, yet he was semper idem with the king, and favourites, and got by both. For although favourites had that exorbitant power over the king, to make him grace and disgrace whom they pleased, yet he was out of their power, and the only exception to that general rule, and for his gettings it was more than almost all the favourites of his time which appeared in those vast expenses of all sorts, and had not the bounty of his mind exceeded his gettings, he might have left the greatest estate ever our age or climate had heard of. He was indeed made for a courtier who wholly studied his master, and understood him better than any other. He was employed in very many of the most weighty affairs, and sent with the most stately embassies of our times, which he performed with that wisdom and magnificence that he seemed an honour to his king and country. For his carriage in state affairs he was turned by some princes the king's juggler. He married the daughter and heir of the Lord Denny, after the Earl of Northumberland's daughter, and was hated of none that I ever heard of, but the Earl of Northampton, who had no patience to see him, being himself of so venomous and cankered a disposition, that indeed he hated all men of noble parts, nor loved any but flatterers like himself. Yet it was a great question whether he hated the Earl of Carlisle or Sir Robert Mansell most, by whom he hath been heard to say, Body of God, I will be content to be damned perpetually in hell to be revenged of that proud Welshman, and did so hate him that he kept an inquisition on him seven years to prove that he had cousined the king of fourteen thousand pounds, which at the seven years' end, at an hearing before the king, the lords, the queen, and all the ladies being present, with all the gallantry of the court, ended in one pair of silk stockings, given by one for a New Year's gift to Master Wells, Sir Robert Mansell's servant, at which the king stood up and swore very deeply, do you believe I will take a pair of silk stockings for my fourteen thousand pounds? Give me that, give me that. Is this all the fruit of seven years' commission? At which words Sir Robert Mansell kneeled down and said, I will now, sir, take all the faults they can charge my servant with upon myself. At which the king was very angry that so noble a gentleman who had so well acquitted himself and honour should entrust it in the keeping of a servant. At the end of all, the Earl of Salisbury kneeled down and said, Sir, if you will suffer malice so far to prevail as to have your honest servants traduced to satisfy the humours of any, I beseech you, take my staff, for were myself and the Earl of Worcester here present, put in the balance against Sir Robert Mansell, we should prove too light. I am in a great place and cannot say, but by myself or servants I may fail, yet not with our own wills. Therefore, sir, if you will suffer such inquisitions, there will be no serving your majesty in such places as I hold by your majesty's favour. 
Thus ended the Earl of Northampton's malice, which only served to honour Sir Robert Mansell and make a scorn of himself, and this only to make the venom of this monster appear, who did flatter the king and dissemble with God. And now begin ambassadors to appear from divers princes. The principal were René Duke of Sullis from the French king, the Constable of Castile from the Spanish king, the Count Arenberg from the Archduke. The former came to congratulate only, and desired the confirmation of the ancient amity betwixt the two crowns, the latter two about the establishing a firm peace betwixt these two kingdoms that had lived in perpetual war and hatred of each other, by which it might appear where the advantage of such a peace would fall by those that sought, or rather bought it, with an infinite mass of treasure prodigally cast about the English court. To bring these ambassadors over were appointed Sir Robert Mansell, being Admiral of the Narrow Seas, and Sir Jerome Turner, his Vice-Admiral. The first commanded to attend at Graveling for the Spanish ambassador, the latter at Calais for the French. But the French coming first in hearing the Vice-Admiral was to attend him, the Admiral the other, in a scorn put himself in a passage-boat at Calais, came forth with flag in top. Instantly Sir Jerome Turner sent to know of the Admiral what he should do. Sir Robert Mansell sent him word to shoot and sink him if he would not take in the flag. This, as it made the flag be pulled in, so a great complaint, and twas believed it would have undone Sir Robert Mansell, the French faction pressing it so home. But he maintained the act, and was the better beloved of his master ever after to his dying day. This makes it appear how jealous old commanders were of their own honour, and of their masters and kingdoms' honours, which since have been so prodigally wasted as we are utterly bankrupt, having spent our old stock, and have not bravery enough to erect a new. The constable of Castile so plied his master's business, in which he spared for no cost, that he procured a peace so advantageous for Spain, and so disadvantageous for England, that it and all Christendom have since both seen and felt the lamentable effects thereof. There was not one courtier of note that tasted not of Spain's bounty, either in gold or jewels, and among them not any in so large a proportion as the Countess of Suffolk, who shared in her lord's interest, being then a potent man, and in that interest which she had in being mistress to that little great secretary, little in body and stature, but great in wit and policy, the sole manager of state affairs. So it may be said she was a double sharer, and in truth, Audley End, that famous and great structure, had its foundation of Spanish gold. End of section two.